story three of the grim smile of the five towns by arnold bennett this librivox recording is in the public domain story three the silent brothers one john and robert hessian brothers bachelors and dressed in mourning sat together after supper in the parlour of their house at the bottom of oldcastle street bursley maggie the middle-aged servant was clearing the table leave the cloth and the coffee said john the elder mr liversedge is coming in yes mr john said maggie slate maggie robert ordered laconically with a gesture towards the mantelpiece behind him yes mr robert said maggie she gave him a slate with slate pencil attached which hung on a nail near the mantelpiece robert took the slate and wrote on it what is liversedge coming about and he pushed the slate across the table to john whereupon john wrote on the slate don't know he telephoned me he wanted to see us tonight and he pushed back the slate to robert this singular procedure was not in the least attributable to deafness on the part of the brothers they were in the prime of life aged forty-two and thirty-nine respectively and in complete possession of all their faculties it was due simply to the fact that they had quarrelled and would not speak to each other the history of their quarrel would be incredible were it not full of that ridiculous pathetic quality known as human nature and did not similar things happen frequently in the manufacturing midlands where the general temperament is a fearful and strange compound of pride obstinacy unconquerableness romance and stupidity yes stupidity no single word had passed between the brothers in that house for ten years on the morning after the historical quarrel robert had not replied when john spoke to him well said john's secret heart and john's secret heart ought to have known better as it was older than his brother's heart i'll teach him a lesson i won't speak to him till he does and robert's secret heart had somehow divined this idiotic resolution and had said we shall see maggie had been the first to notice the stubborn silence then their friends noticed it especially mr leversidge the solicitor their most intimate friend but you are not to suppose that anybody protested very strongly for john and robert were not the kind of men with whom liberties may be taken and moreover bursley was slightly amused at the beginning it assumed the attitude of a disinterested spectator in a fight it wondered who would win of course it called both the brothers fools yet in a tone somewhat sympathetic because such a thing as had occurred to the hessians might well occur to any man gifted with the true bursley spirit there is this to be said for a bursley man having made his bed he will lie on it and he will not complain the hessians suffered severely by their self-imposed dumbness but they suffered like stoics maggie also suffered and maggie would not stand it maggie it was who had invented the slate indeed they had heard some plain truths from that stout bustling woman they had not yielded but they had accepted the slate in order to minimize the inconvenience to maggie and afterwards they deigned to make use of it for their own purposes as for friends friends accustomed themselves to the status quo there came a time when the spectacle of two men chattering to everybody else in a company and not saying a word to each other no longer appealed to bursley's sense of humour 
the silent scenes at which maggie assisted every day did not either appeal to maggie's sense of humour because she had none so the famous feud grew into a sort of elemental fact of nature it was tolerated as the weather is tolerated the brothers acquired pride in it even bursley regarded it as an interesting municipal curiosity the sole imperfection in a lovely and otherwise perfect quarrel was that john and robert being both employed at roycroft's majolica manufactory the one as works manager and the other as commercial traveller were obliged to speak to each other occasionally in the way of business artistically this was a pity though they did speak very sternly and distantly the partial truce necessitated by roycroft's was confined strictly to roycroft's and when robert was not on his journeys these two tall strong dark bearded men might often be seen of a night walking separately and doggedly down oldcastle street from the works within five yards of each other and no one suggested the lunatic asylum such is the force of pride of rank stupidity and of habit the slate scratching was scarcely over that evening when mr powell leversidge appeared he was a golden-haired man with a jolly face lighter and shorter in structure than the two brothers his friendship with them dated from school days and it had survived even the entrance of liversidge into a learned profession liversidge who being a bachelor like the hessians had many unoccupied evenings came to see the brothers regularly every saturday night and one or other of them dropped in upon him most wednesdays but this particular night was a thursday how do john greeted him succinctly between two puffs of a pipe how do replied the liversage how do pal robert greeted him in turn also between two puffs of a pipe and how do little un replied liversage a chair was indicated to him and he sat down and robert poured out some coffee into a third cup which maggie had brought john pushed away the extra special of the staffordshire signal which he had been reading what's up these days john demanded well said liversidge and both brothers noticed that he was rather ill at ease instead of being humorous and lightly caustic as usual the wills turned up the devil it has john exclaimed when this afternoon and then as there was a pause liversidge added yes my sons the wills turned up but where you cuckoo sitting there like that asked robert where it was in that registered letter addressed to your sister that the post-office people wouldn't hand over until we'd taken out letters of administration well i'm dashed muttered john who'd have thought of that you've got the will then liversidge nodded the hessians had an elder sister mrs bott widow of a colour merchant and mrs bott had died suddenly three months ago the night after a journey to manchester even at the funeral the brothers had scandalized the town by not speaking to each other mrs bott had wealth wit and wisdom together with certain peculiarities of which one was an excessive secrecy it was known that she had made a will because she had more than once notified the fact in a tone suggestive of highly important issues but the will had refused to be found 
so mr liversidge had been instructed to take out letters of administration of the estate which in the continued absence of the will would be divided equally between the brothers and twelve or thirteen thousand pounds may be compared to a financial beefsteak that cuts up very handsomely for two persons the carving-knife was about to descend on its succulents when lo the will how came the will to be in the post asked robert the handwriting on the envelope was your sister's said liversidge and the package was posted in manchester very probably she had taken the will to manchester to show it to a lawyer or something of that sort and then she was afraid of losing it on the journey back and so she sent it to herself by registered post but before it arrived of course she was dead that wasn't a bad scheme of poor mary ann's john commented it was just like her said robert speaking pointedly to liversidge but what an odd thing now both these men were no doubt excusably agonized by curiosity to learn the content of the will but would either of them be the first to express that curiosity never in this world not for the fortune itself to do so would scarcely have been bursleyish it would certainly not have been hessian-like so liversidge was obliged at length to say i reckon i'd better read you the will eh the brothers nodded mind you said liversidge it's not my will i've had nothing to do with it so kindly keep your hair on as a matter of fact she must have drawn it up herself it's not drawn properly at all but it's witnessed all right and it'll hold water just as well as if the bloomin lord chancellor had fixed it up for her in person he produced the document and read awkwardly and self-consciously this is my will you are both of you extremely foolish john and robert and i've often told you so nobody has ever understood and nobody ever will understand why you quarrelled like that over anne emory you are punishing yourselves but you are punishing her as well and it isn't fair her waiting all these years so i give all my estate no matter what it is to whichever of you marries annie and i hope this will teach you a lesson you need it more than you need my money but you must be married within a year of my death and if the one that marries cares to give five thousand pounds or so to the other of course there's nothing to prevent him this is just a hint and if you don't either of you marry annie within a year then i just leave everything i have to miss annie emory spinster stationer and fancy goods dealer duck bank bursley she deserves something for her disappointment and she shall have it mr liversidge solicitor must kindly be my executor and i commit my soul to god hoping for a blessed resurrection twentieth january eighteen ninety six signed mary ann bott widow as i told you the witnessing is in order liversidge finished give it here said john shortly and scanned the sheet of paper and robert actually walked round the table and looked over his brother's shoulder ample proof that he was terrifically moved and do you mean to tell me that a will like that is good in law exclaimed john of course it's good in law liversidge replied legal phraseology is a useful thing and it often saves trouble in the end but it ain't indispensable you know Humph was robert's comment as he resumed his seat and relighted his pipe all three men were nervous 
each was afraid to speak afraid even to meet the eyes of the other two an unmajestic silence followed well i'll be off i think liversidge remarked at length with difficulty he rose i say robert stopped him better not say anything about this to miss uh, to annie eh i will say nothing agreed liversidge infamously and unprofessionally concealing the fact that he had already said something and he departed the brothers sat in flustered meditation over the past and future ten years before annie emory had been an orphan of twenty-three bravely starting in business for herself amid the plaudits of the admiring town and john had fallen in love with her courage and her sense and her feminine charm but alas as ovid points out how difficult it is for a woman to please only one man robert also had fallen in love with annie each brother had accused the other of underhand and unbrotherly practices in the pursuit of annie each was profoundly hurt by the accusations and each in the immense fatuity of his pride had privately sworn to prove his innocence by having nothing more to do with annie such is life such is man such is the terrible egoism of man and thus it was that for the sake of wounded pride john and robert not only did not speak to one another for ten years but they spoilt at least one of their lives and they behaved ignobly to annie who would certainly have married either one or the other of them at two o'clock in the morning john pulled a coin out of his pocket and made the gesture of tossing who shall go first he explained robert had a queer sensation in his spine as his elder brother spoke to him for the first time in ten years he wanted to reply vocally he had a most imperious desire to reply vocally but he could not something stronger even than the desire prevented his tongue from moving john tossed the coin it was a sovereign and covered it with his hands tail robert murmured somewhat hoarsely but it was head then they went to bed two the side door of miss emory's shop was in brick passage and not in the main street so that a man even a man of commanding stature and formidable appearance might by insinuating himself into brick street off king street and then taking the passage from the quieter end arrive at it without attracting too much attention this course was adopted by john hessian from the moment when he quitted his own house that friday evening in june he had been subject to the delusion that the collective eye of bursley was upon him as a matter of fact the collective eye of bursley is much too large and important to occupy itself exclusively with a single individual bursley is not a village and let no one think it nevertheless john was subject to the delusion the shop was shut as he knew it would be but the curtained window of the parlour between the side door and the small shuttered side window of the shop gave a strange suggestion of interesting virgin spotless domesticity within john cast a fearful eye on the main thoroughfare nobody seemed to be passing the chapel-keeper of the wesleyan chapel on the opposite side of trafalgar road was refreshing the massive corinthian portico of that fane and paying no regard whatever to the temple of eros which miss emory's shop had suddenly become 
so john knocked i am a fool his thought ran as he knocked because he did not know what he was about he had won the toss and with it the right to approach annie emory before his brother but what then well he did desire to marry her quite as much for herself as for his sister's fortune but what then how was he going to explain the tepidity the desertion the long sin against love of ten years in short how was he going to explain the inexplicable he could decidedly do nothing that evening except make a blundering ass of himself and how soon would robert have the right to come along and say his say that point had not been settled points so extremely delicate cannot be settled on a slate and he had not dared to broach it viva voce to his younger brother he had been too afraid of a rebuff he then hoped that annie's servant would tell him that annie was out annie however took him at a disadvantage by opening the door herself well mr hessian she exclaimed her face bursting into a swift and welcoming smile i was just passing the donkey in him blundered forth and i thought however in fifteen seconds he was on the domestic side of the sitting-room window and seated in the antimacassared armchair between the fireplace and the piano and annie had taken his hat and told him that her servant was out for the evening but i'm disturbing your supper miss emory he said flurried though he was he could not fail to notice the white embroidered cloth spread diagonally on the table and the cold meat and the pastry and the glittering cutlery and crystal thereon oh not at all she replied you haven't had supper yet i expect no he said not thinking it will be nice of you to help me eat mine said she oh but really but she got plates and things out of the cupboard below the bookcase and there he was she would take no refusal it was wondrous i'm awfully glad i came now his thought ran i'm managing it rather well and poor bob his sole discomfort was that he could not invent a sufficiently ingenious explanation of his call you can't tell a woman you've called to make love to her and when your previous call happens to have been ten years ago some kind of an explanation does seem to be demanded ultimately as annie was so very pleased to see him so friendly so feminine so equal to the occasion he decided to let his presence in her abode that night stand as one of those central facts in existence that need no explanation and they went on talking and eating till the dusk deepened and annie lit the gas and drew the blind he watched her on the sly as she moved about the room he decided that she did not appear a day older there was the same plump erect figure the same neatness the same fair skin and fair hair the same little nose the same twinkle in the eye only perhaps the twinkle in the eye was a trifle less cruel than it used to be she was not a day older in this he was of course utterly mistaken she was ten years older and she was thirty-three with ten years of successful commercial experience behind her she would never be twenty-three again still she was a most desirable woman and a woman infinitely beyond his deserts her air of general capability impressed him and with that there was mingled a strange softness a marvellous hint of a concealed wish to surrender 
well she made him feel big and masculine in brief a man he regretted the lost ten years his present way of life seemed intolerable to him the new heaven opened its gate and gave glimpses of paradise after all he felt himself well qualified for that paradise he felt that he had all along been a woman's man without knowing it by jove his thought ran at this rate i might propose to her in a week or two and then poor old bobby a quarter of an hour later in some miraculous manner they were more intimate than they had ever been much more intimate he revised his estimate of the time that must elapse before he might propose to her in another five minutes he was fighting hard against a mad impulse to propose to her on the spot and then the fight was over and he had lost he proposed to her under the rose-coloured shade of the wellsbach light she drew away as though shot and with the rapidity of lightning in the silence which followed he went back to his original criticism of himself that he was a fool naturally she would request him to leave she would accuse him of effrontery her lips trembled he prepared to rise it's so sudden she said bliss glory celestial joy her words were at least equivalent to an absolution of his effrontery she would accept she would accept he jumped up and approached her but she jumped up too and retreated he was not to win his prize so easily please sit down she murmured i must think it over she said apparently mastering herself shall you be at chapel next sunday morning yes he answered if i am there and if i am wearing white roses in my hat it will mean she dropped her eye yes he queried and she nodded and supposing you aren't there then the sunday after she said he thanked her in his hessian style i prefer that way of telling you she smiled demurely it will avoid the necessity for another um so much you understand quite so quite so he agreed i, I quite understand and if i do see those roses he went on i shall take upon myself to drop in for tea may i she paused in any case you mustn't speak to me coming out of chapel please as he walked home down old castle street he said to himself that the age of miracles was not past and also that after all he was not so old as the tale of his years would mathematically indicate three her absence from chapel on the next sunday disagreed with him however robert was away nearly all the week and he had the house to himself to dream in it frequently happened to him to pass by miss emory's shop but he caught no glimpse of her and though he really was in serious need of writing paper and envelopes he dared not enter robert returned on the friday on the morning of the second sunday john got up early in order to cope with a new necktie that he had purchased in hanbridge nevertheless he found robert a foot before him and robert by some unlucky chance was wearing not merely a new necktie but a new suit of clothes they breakfasted in their usual august silence and john gathered from a remark of robert's to maggie when she brought in the boots that robert meant to go to chapel 
now robert being a commercial traveller and therefore a bit of a caution did not attend chapel with any remarkable assiduity and john in the privacy of his own mind blamed him for having been so clumsy as to choose that particular morning for breaking the habits of a lifetime still the presence of robert in the pew could not prejudicially affect john and so there was no genuine cause for gloominess after a time it became apparent that each was waiting for the other to go john began to get annoyed at last he made the plunge and went turning his head halfway up old castle street opposite the mansion which is called miss peel's he perceived robert fifty yards behind it was a glorious june day he blushed as he entered chapel if he was nervous it may be accorded to him as excuse that the happiness of his life depended on what he should see within the next few minutes however he felt pretty sure though it was exciting all the same to reach the hessian pew he was obliged to pass miss emory's and it was empty robert arrived the organist finished the voluntary the leading tenor of the choir put up the number of the first hymn the minister ascended the staircase of the great mahogany pulpit and prayed silently and arranged his papers in the leaves of the hymn-book and glanced about to see who was there and who was presumably still in bed and coughed and then miss annie emory sailed in with that air of false calm which is worn by the experienced traveller who catches a train by the fifth of a second the service commenced john looked she was wearing white roses there could be no mistake as to that there were about a hundred and fifty-five white roses in the garden of her hat what a thrill ran through john's heart he had won annie and he had won the fortune yes he would give robert the odd five thousand pounds his state of mind might even lead him to make it guineas he heard not a word of the sermon and throughout the service he rose up and sat down several instants after the rest of the congregation because he was so absent-minded after service he waited for everybody else to leave in order not to break his promise to the divine annie so did robert this ill-timed rudeness on robert's part somewhat retarded the growth of a young desire in john's heart to make friends with poor bob then he got up and left and robert followed they dined in silence john deciding that he would begin his overtures of friendship after he had seen annie and could tell robert that he was formally engaged the brothers ate little they both improved their minds during their repast john with the christian commonwealth and robert with the saturday cricket edition of the signal i regret it then after pipes they both went out for a walk naturally not in the same direction the magnificence of the weather filled them both with the joy of life as for john he went out for a walk simply because he could not contain himself within the house he could not wait immovable till four-thirty the hour at which he meant to call on annie for tea and the betrothal kiss therefore he ascended to hillport and wandered as far as old castle all in a silk hat and a frock coat it was precisely half-past four as he turned unassumingly from brick street into brick passage and so approached the side door of annie emory's 
and his astonishment and anger were immense when he saw robert likewise in silk hat and frock coat penetrating into brick passage from the other end they met and their inflamed spirits collided what's the meaning of this john demanded furious and simultaneously robert demanded what in hades are you doing here only sunday and the fine clothes and the proximity to annie prevented actual warfare i'm calling on annie said john so am i said robert well you're too late said john oh i'm too late am i said robert with a disdainful laugh thanks i tell you you're too late said john you may as well know it at once that i've proposed to annie and she's accepted me i like that i like that said robert don't shout said john i'm not shouting said robert but you may as well know that you're mistaken my boy it's me that's proposed to annie and been accepted you must be off your chump when did you propose to her said john on friday if you must know said robert and she accepted you at once said john no she said that if she was wearing white roses in her hat this morning at chapel that would mean she accepted said robert liar said john i suppose you'll admit she was wearing white roses in her hat said robert controlling himself liar said john and continued breathless that was what she said to me she must have told you that white roses meant a refusal oh no she didn't said robert quailing secretly but keeping up a formidable show of courage you're an old fool he added vindictively they were both breathing hard and staring hard at each other come away said john come away we can't talk here she may look out the window so they went away they walked very quickly home and once in the parlor they began to have it out and before they had done the reading of cricket news on sunday was as nothing compared to the desecrating iniquity which they committed the scene was not such as can be decently recounted but about six o'clock maggie entered and at considerable personal risk brought them back to a sense of what was due to their name the town and the day she then stated that she would not remain in such a house and she departed four but whatever made you do it dearest these words were addressed to annie emory on the glorious summer evening which closed that glorious summer day and they were addressed to her by no other person than powell liversidge the pair were in the garden of the house in trafalgar road occupied by mr liversidge and his mother and they looked westwards over the distant ridge of hillport where the moon was setting whatever made me do it repeated annie and the twinkle in her eye had that charming cruelty which john had missed did they not deserve it of course i can talk to you now with perfect freedom can't i well what do you think of it here for ten years neither one nor the other does more than recognize me in the street and then all of a sudden they come down on me like that simply because there's a question of money i couldn't have believed men could be so stupid no i really couldn't they're friends of yours powell i know that but however that's no matter but it was too ridiculously easy to lead them on they'd swallow any flattery i just did it to see what they'd do and i think i arranged it pretty well 
i quite expected they would call about the same time and then shouldn't i have given them my mind unfortunately they met outside and got very hot i saw them from the bedroom window and went away you mustn't forget my dear girl said liversidge that it was you they quarrelled about i don't want to defend them for a minute but it wasn't altogether the money that sent them to you it was more that the money gave them an excuse for coming it was a very bad excuse then said annie agreed sliversidge murmured the moon was extremely lovely and romantic against the distant spire of hillport church and its effect on the couple was just what might have been anticipated perhaps i'm sorry annie admitted at length with a charming grimace oh i don't think there's anything to be sorry about said liversidge but of course they'll think i've had a hand in it you see i've never breathed a word to them about about my feelings towards you no no it would have been a rather a delicate subject you see with them and i'm sure they'll be staggered when they know that we got engaged last night they'll certainly say i've um, been after you for the um no they won't they're decent chaps really very decent anyhow you may be sure dear said annie stiffly that i shan't rob them of their vile money nothing would induce me to touch it of course not dearest said liversidge or rather the finer part of him said it the baser part somewhat regretted that vile twelve thousand or so i must be truthful he took her hand again at the same moment old mrs liversidge came hastening down the garden and liversidge dropped the hand powell she said here's john hessian and he wants to see you the dickens exclaimed liversidge glancing at annie i must go said annie i shall go by the fields good night dear mrs liversidge wait ten seconds liversidge pleaded and i'll be with you and he ran off john haggard and undone was awaiting him in the drawing-room pow he said i've had a fearful row with rob and i can't possibly sleep in our house to-night don't talk to me but let me have one of the beds in your spare room will you that's a good chap why of course johnny said liversidge of course and i'll go right to bed now said john an hour later after powell liversidge had seen his affianced to her abode and returned home and after his mother had gone to bed there was a knock at the front door and liversidge opened to robert hessian look here powell said robert whose condition was deplorable i want to sleep here to-night do you mind fact is i've had a devil of a shindy with jack and maggie'll run off and anyhow i couldn't possibly stop in the same house with jack to-night but what see here said robert i can't talk just let me have a bed in your spare room i'm sure your mother won't mind why certainly said liversidge he lit a candle escorted robert upstairs opened the door of the spare room gave the candle to robert pushed him in said good night and shut the door what a night end of story three